Okay, final week, Jonah chapter four, just nine and 10, just two verses. So we should be out of here in like 15 minutes, right? Okay, as our story begins to end, where is Jonah? East of the east. Here is our boy Jonah, metaphorically further from God than even his own enemies. And he is hot. He is hot emotionally and physically. So he has endured hurricanes, the belly of a fish, the city of Nineveh, but here he is and he's sweaty and he's sunburned and he's ticked. We find Jonah in a really bad moment as our text opens. And the first problem that is presented to us in this text is a pretty grim scene of the very nature of sin. The very nature of sin is that it separates. Right, didn't we see this in Luke 15 last week when we looked at the older son? We saw the ways that Jonah is like the older son in the story of the prodigal son. Where was the self-righteous older son? Alone, outside the party, missing out on the celebration. And isn't that where Jonah is for the exact same reason? Sin separates, ladies. And so here he is by himself outside the party of repentance. But that's not all that's going on here. Guys, it's not the only lesson going on in the book of Jonah, that sin has its consequences, that sin brings a storm with mighty gusts, with vengeance. That is not all that's going on. This text is about the discipline of the Lord. This story has been all about God being up in Jonah's business, being up in his face, delivering paternal discipline. But why? Why is God disciplining Jonah? Why is he disciplining him as a son? I mean, why are these verses even included? I don't think it's as simple as us just talking about Jonah's sin anymore. I think it would be amiss if, if we just sat on Jonah's shortcomings as the book closes. Because what, what has been the goal of this whole book? All four chapters have had this same goal, that Jonah would learn of God's love, that he would learn of his love for his enemies, that Jonah would learn of God's love for God's enemies. But just as importantly, that Jonah would learn of God's love for Jonah. So let's look for that as we dig into these verses. So here's God, enter stage right. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Or is it right to be angry for the plant? Here's God in his omnipresence coming near to Jonah yet again. And although he knows all things, he takes the time to ask a question. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? This has probably been my favorite observation about God from the book of Jonah, is the questions that he asks him and what that reveals about him, how patient, how kind he is to ask these gentle rhetorical questions. Did this sound familiar to anyone? Maybe someone who did the Genesis study last semester? In Genesis chapter four, we saw God do this to someone else who was very angry. I love to see you guys nodding. He came to Cain, didn't he? Uh, Genesis chapter four, <clears throat> verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God, with so much patience for a man who is about to commit murder, God comes to him and asks the same question. He's saying, Cain, you better slay your anger. It will kill you. It will devour you. I love that God responds to Jonah in this way. And so what does Jonah do in response? Does he say, oh, oh, no, I, you're right. Oh my goodness, sorry about that, God. No, he says, yep, I do right to be angry, absolutely. What do we learn from Jonah's response? We see the problem of this concluding text. The problem that we need to look at this morning is that Jonah is very unlike God. Why do we have this tumultuous negative scene at the end of the book? What is the cause of this problem? Jonah is very unlike God. Three ways that we're gonna look at that. First of all, Jonah's anger. Jonah's anger shows us that he is not like God although he was intended to be his image bearer. So ladies, let's talk about anger. We've done about two weeks of homework on anger and I think we're just getting started. So my husband has a book called Uprooting Anger. And so I was asking him for some tidbits on this. The Bible, uh, there are, of the Bible verses that speak of anger, 89% of them are also talking about sin. Okay, so let's get our math right. So of the 47 times that the Old Testament speaks about anger, 42 times it is also speaking about sin in that same verse. Ladies, I think that an opportunity is here for us to say, you know that anger that we call righteous anger? That anger in our life that we just decided to put a big old label on it, righteous anger. I wonder if we fooled ourselves. I wonder if we have deceived ourselves in thinking that our anger is righteous. Let's talk about what is righteous anger. Well, first of all, righteous anger is reacting to sin, not the sinner. Big difference. Righteous anger, it's reacting to the sin. The anger is coming out at the sin, not the sinner. Secondly, it focuses on God and his kingdom, not me and my queendom. Righteous anger is focusing on the rights and concerns of God's kingdom, not Rebecca's rights, Rebecca's concerns, Rebecca's privileges. And this is the stinger, guys. Righteous anger, for for that anger that you have to truly be righteous, then what is surrounding it, what is accompanying it is other godly behavior and qualities. If we think we have righteous anger, this is our litmus test. These are the questions to use. This is the assessment to go through. We would be better women. We would be blessed women if we asked ourselves these hard questions. And maybe if we asked the truth speakers in our life to weigh in on this. Jonah is very unlike God in his anger. Secondly, his self-pity. Okay, self-pity. 
It's like the ugly stepsister of anger. Let's talk about it. Here is Jonah and he is drowning in self-pity. I got my play on words in one more time. Drowning. That's why I'll be sad next week because I don't get to make any more like sea metaphors or whatever. Okay, what is self-pity? This quote came from Mark and I don't know where he got it. Self-pity, pride in the heart of the weak. Pride in the heart of the weak. Guys, what's going on here with Jonah? It is not just that he thinks the Ninevites are getting something that they don't deserve. It is that Jonah thinks that he is not getting what he deserves. You see the difference there? He's not just mad that they got mercy. It's that he's sitting here without something that he very much thinks he deserves. Primarily, sovereignty and comfort. Those are what Jonah thinks he has a right to. He wants to be on the throne. He wants to be writing the story. He thinks that he should decide what happens next in the life of his enemies and his own story. And comfort. Jonah is very uncomfortable in this scene. So guys, what does self-pity actually look like in our lives? Let's be specific. Let's actually give the spirit an opportunity to show us if this is a way that we are unlike God. Self-pity often looks like us being stuck and alone in something. Stuck and alone, maybe emotionally, or just not moving forward in a problem in our life. Self-pity looks like simmering and stewing. Anyone simmered or stewed on something lately? Self-pity can look like a cold shoulder and bitterness. So ladies, I think that this is something that can trip us up a lot. And I think that this is something that can go undetected in our lives a lot. Are your friends getting something that you think you deserve? I mean, could it just be a bigger house Maybe a listening husband, a baby? Are other people getting what you think you deserve? Guys, it is one thing to have these desires and bring them to the Lord. Those, that is good. We are encouraged to do that. But it's another thing when we take these desires and we say that they are our right. We take a desire that is good in and of itself, but then we, we begin to be entitled to it. No, I have a right to relational comfort in my marriage. I have a right to this kind of house or this kind of savings account. We get entitled in these ways. We believe that God owes something to us. God is very unlike Jonah is very unlike God. Haven't we been talking about from week one how this book is a satire, right? We see extremes and we see opposites. We saw east to west. We saw pagan sailors and then a super prophet. And so we see these extremes. The author is writing a satire. And is that not how the story is ending? We are seeing how very unlike God Jonah is. So we have Jonah's anger. And then we have God's anger. Jonah's anger is so quick in coming. God's is slow in coming, both towards the Ninevites and Jonah. Jonah's anger 
does not come from a pure place, but God's does, God's is right and pure and just. Well, how about Jonah's self-pity next to God's pity? Not for himself, but look at God's pity toward the Ninevites. And thirdly, how else is Jonah unlike God? Well, he is resisting, resisting suffering and hardship. Do you see that? It's the way that Jonah is thinking of and handling suffering that contrasts greatly with God's. He's intolerant of it. He has no capacity for suffering in his life. And we talked about, well, we looked at this in our homework when we looked at the apostle Paul. Here we have two men who have so much in common, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Both are these really uh, high achieving Jews, Hebrews. Right? They have great pedigrees, great resumes. God comes to both of them and says, I want you to take my word, my mercy, my good news to the Gentiles, right? to the Ninevites, to Jonah, and then to the whole Gentile world, to the apostle Paul. But where are they so different? Is it because of the gospel, because Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul? He was told right away at the beginning, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right away, as Paul is beginning his life with Jesus, he has a box for suffering. He has a grid for suffering and hardship and discomfort in his life. And it would fill his whole life. It fills like a whole page in 2 Corinthians. Jonah does not have a box for suffering. To him, the super prophet, the golden boy, there is no room for suffering in his life, no capacity. When you guys were going through this homework, I wonder if you asked this question, is Jonah really that mad about the plant? I mean, I kill a lot of plants. I have a major brown thumb. I, get, I mean, I get super, super jealous of you plant moms in here. And it's, I know it's just like the thing right now. So it's just like pulling out my insecurities. I cannot even keep a succulent alive. One time I got a little cactus, like when we were doing some teaching, it was like our centerpieces. I don't know. It was a horrible little attempt for me to like decorate a women's event. I like got a little cactus. I killed the cactus. I, I still don't know how I did that. But is Jonah really mad that the plant is gone? I don't think so. I think it goes way deeper than that. I think he's mad that his enemies are prospering. I think he is mad and uncomfortable at what he sees to be as injustice, that such an evil people are getting away with something. But honestly, I think it's even more than that. I think that Jonah is exhausted. And I think that maybe some of us could relate with him in that way. I mean, I actually feel for him and it's about time. It's the last two verses in the book. I, I feel for him. Guys, what would it be like to be Jonah on this day? I mean, have you ever had an intense season in life where the things just line up one after the other after the other? I mean, one of the hardest things for me is when God kind of shocks me with his discipline when he has chosen to move in a way that I didn't see coming, or he takes away something that, that I couldn't have guessed. See, when discipline surprises me, when it lasts longer than I want it to last, when the learning curve is steeper, when it goes deeper than I can stand, I do not feel that God's discipline comes from a loving father. 
And, and what I wanna do in that moment is be alone like Jonah. And I wanna let my feelings be the boss like Jonah. And the depression in that moment is very real. You throw a hot sun or scalding wind in my face at that moment and I am done for. Could that be where Jonah is? He is exhausted. Good grief, God, I obeyed. I obeyed, didn't I? I did what you said. I brought your word to the Ninevites. And now this, it's not letting up. It's one thing after another. When is it gonna get easier, God? And so maybe this week, I'm gonna stop separating myself from Jonah so drastically. I'm gonna stop seeing him in the harshest of lights. Because maybe it's not just that Jonah is so stubborn, but maybe it's that the lesson has to go so deep. Maybe the lesson of responding and, and accepting discipline from the Lord is a lesson that we are very slow to catch on to. Specifically, here's what Jonah was not getting. God often uses times of discipline and discomfort as evidences of love for his children. And that's why we went to Hebrews 12 this week. God uses hardship, discomfort to communicate love to his children. The storm in chapter one was a love letter. The fish with his teeth and his tongue and his stomach, that all built up a messenger of grace. And now this tiny little worm, the very hungry caterpillar, he also is a tool in God's hand, a scalpel in the merciful hand of God. How I wish that Jonah would have gotten this. You know, in Hebrews 12, it's quoting Solomon. We know that Jonah knows his Old Testament. He quoted Moses verbatim. How I wish he would have quoted Solomon here and said, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This would have changed everything for Jonah. If we could have screamed at him, Jonah, you're a son. Jonah, you're a son. This is how father-son relationships worked. There is regular discipline in them, but Jonah isn't there yet. He is so weary. He is faint-hearted. He is wilting under the heat of God's discipline. But God and his love and his sovereignty and that whole list that we've been building this spring, he is pruning and hoping to grow his son through this hardship. And isn't it so true that just like in Jonah's life, sometimes our hardships are big and dramatic like a sea monster. But most of the time, it's like a little worm. It's just a little worm catches us by surprise and brings a lot of discomfort in our life. Guys, both the giant sea monsters and the seemingly insignificant worms in our life are the handiwork of God. They are instruments in the Redeemer's hand. 
But this discipline has our friend Jonah very faint and very weary. He is regarding lightly the discipline, right? He's regarding lightly what God has packed a ton of purpose into. And so what that looks like, he's just circling anger to self-pity, anger to self-pity until he is circling the drain rather than leaning into it like we've talked about, rather than being trained by this. So boots on the ground, how can we avoid this? How can we make sure that we don't get stuck outside the party like Jonah? We're using what we saw in Hebrews chapter 12. I want you guys to think about that hardship in your life right now or in seasons past. What is that thing? Who is that person that is just making your life hard? What is that circumstance? And now I want you to take the big old truth that you are a daughter of God and put it on top of that. Start there. That is who you are. You are a child of God. If that is true, a son and a daughter expects and accepts discipline from their parent. Accepts and expects discipline. And when we do that, when we accept it, then the result of that discipline, according to Hebrews, is that we share in God's holiness. And the result of sharing in God's holiness is then that people will see God when they see us. So could that be part of our solution? The problem that we brought up that Jonah is very unlike God and that's why we have a grim scene. Well, now here we are saying that if we can follow this process through, we start to share in God's holiness. We start to imitate him and remind people of him. See guys, it is not just that God can bring suffering from our lives. That, that's not the full truth. It's not that God is like reacting to the cancer or that he's caught on his heels by the divorce or the moody teenager or the financial loss. It is more than that, guys. Our hope is not as small as God can work good despite our circumstances. It's not just that God can work good despite your marriage issues or your chaotic home or your unknown future. The story of the Bible has suffering at the very middle. Suffering is the crux of God's story. Suffering is the means of salvation. So the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament reveals that Jesus, the King, would be crowned while hanging on a cross. He would be enthroned, when? In his greatest moment of discomfort. He is the suffering servant in Isaiah and he is the sacrificed lamb in Revelation. Jesus too would be outside the town, just like Jonah. Not because his sin was separating, him, but my sin and your sin. That's why he's outside the town. And he's not just separated from the town, but he's separated from God. And that's why we read that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ladies, it is not just that suffering should be tolerated 
in our lives. Suffering is how we share in Jesus's experiences. So as those that are intended to look like him and rule for him and respond like him, we must do more than just tolerate the hard things in our life. We must be trained by it. You are loved like a totter. You are loved like a child. So ladies, what is it in your life right now that needs this training? Is there a huge storm or a great fish that's wearing you down? Where do you need to see yourself no longer as the victim of your circumstance, but as the daughter whom God is shaping? Is there a small, annoying inconvenience in your life, like a crying baby or an annoying coworker or a surprise car expense expense that could bring into your life good, that could usher into your life the holiness of God? Those times when we wanna complain and whisper a complaint rather than a whisper of praise. Those are the small times in our life that God wants to start with. Those are the moments that he wants to redeem. What is it in your life? As the text closed down, here we have Jonah, this man who's supposed to be an image bearer and he's poorly reflecting God. So do we just kind of end the book bummed and hope Colossians is happier? (laughs) I mean, do we just say, well, I guess I'll just be angry and pitiful and weak like Jonah. Does this book actually have a sad ending? No, the story ends with great, great news. Because as is fitting, Jonah does not get the last word, although I'm sure he wanted it. Jonah does not get the last word, but God does. Here is God's response to Jonah. And it is in this that we find the solution to our problem. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And also, much cattle. We're not gonna talk about that. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Guys, the solution to Jonah being very unlike God is that God is very unlike Jonah. That is actually our hope. While Jonah and all of us often fall short of looking like God to a broken world, there are many ways that God is very unlike us. What do we see just in these verses? Well, we see that he labored for the plant, showing himself as creator. We see him making the plant grow, which is showing that he is all powerful. We see him laboring and sustaining Nineveh, showing that he is long suffering, rich in mercy. He's the sustainer of life. He is judge. He is free to give mercy to whom he wants to give it to. He is omnipotent. He is eternal. He is self-existent. He is self-existing and he is sovereign and we are none of those things. And so we can't rattle these things off and not just be amazed. 
We can't paint this picture of God and not be quieted in that moment. I mean, when we see God in his true light, we see that he is so unlike man. And the beautiful fruit that then comes from this moment is that we actually then draw near to those who we previously thought were unlike us. By identifying God, what that does, when we turn our gaze to him, is it naturally gets our gaze off of who? Us, exactly. It gets our eyes off of ourselves. And then all of a sudden, I see us as a lot more the same than I previously thought. See, instead of thinking that I'm more like God than I am like my enemies, I start to see it as the other way around. The greatest disparity is not between me and my enemies or Jonah and the Ninevites. The greatest disparity is between me and God. Psalm 89.6 says, for who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Psalm 113.5 says, the Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God? The one enthroned on high. Guys, the Ninevites and my neighbors and your in-laws, they too are image bearers of this great God. They were created to rule and serve for God, just like us. The only difference is between us and the non-believer is that you and I have been brought near by mercy. We have been rescued. That humbles us. Seeing God in the correct light humbles us. Seeing how we have been saved humbles us. And humility changes everything. Guys, a humble woman extends mercy and a lot of it. A humble woman draws near to those who are unlike her. And a humble woman will tell others her story, just like Jonah. She will tell the story of how the word of the Lord came to her, how her new life came by means of grace. The humble woman will tell her story of how God loved her too much to leave her in her comfort zone, too much to leave her in her small view of God. She will tell her story as Jonah will tell his story a story where salvation and sanctification come from the Lord. She will tell a story of how she no longer wanted to be the very center of her life, but as she responded to the kindness of God and she learned to see his control over the seas and the fish, she moved off her throne and began to build her life with God at the center. She will then tell her story about learning God's story. And she will leave her story open-ended, just like Jonah. As if to say, I know he's still writing my story. I know there's more growth. I know there's more learning curves. I know that there's more repentance to come. So as that paternal loving discipline comes, 
I know that I know that I know that he is planting seeds of righteousness. And if I can trust him, then I can sit tight and I can wait because later, I don't know how much later, but later it will yield a fruit of righteousness. The humble woman tells the story of God. She will tell the good news. She will preach it to herself and then she will share it with those closest to her and then she'll even go to those not close to her and tell them too. This is our story. And this is our God, the God of Jonah. So slow to anger, so merciful, and so jealous for us that he will not leave us as we are, but will change us by his nearness, will change us by revealing his holiness. Let's pray.